it was really sweet. I'm sitting there, and the text is being read, and Caitlin's just, she said, God is with you, Tommy. So that was the encouragement I needed. Well, this is a, kind of a sad season of the year sometimes because we just sent off all of our graduates, and uh, the family kind of shrinks a little bit, but it's also a huge blessing because we do get to shift into one service, and this is traditionally that moment where people look across the room and like, you go to this church? I didn't know, and people have been going for two semesters now. So I hope that you can enjoy this season um, of having a little bit of extra unity together as a church body. Now, today, we're also wel welcoming our kiddos here this morning, so there's a little bit more commotion in the room, and we love doing this as a church. We want to welcome our children once a month uh, to be a part of the service so they can just see how church is modeled. What are we doing up here? They're not a nuisance. We don't just send them downstairs uh, so they're out of sight and out of mind, uh, but they are being discipled and trained up downstairs, and so every once in a while, we want them to join us up here so that they can get a taste for what worship looks like uh, when they grow up and uh, become adults. So what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to invite them all down here. So why don't the little ones come right down to the front. If you're under the age, I don't know how we do ages. If you're under fifth grade, come on down. If you're a child at heart and you want to come down, come on down too. That's cool. We've had some adults come down here. so. And I'm going to sit so you can't hear me as well, but you'll, uh, or sorry, you won't see me as well, but you'll hear me. Have a seat in a little semicircle. Beautiful. Good job, Davey. And we're going to do something fun here. Excuse me. All right. Yeah, I'm busting out the dry erase this morning. All right. So, hi, guys. How are we doing? Pretty good? Are you guys excited for a family worship Sunday? What is family worship Sunday? It's a time where you get to be up here because normally you're downstairs, right? Yeah. So, this is going to be awesome. So I hope that you kids can help me with something this Sunday, okay? I'm going to give you a little lesson, but I am hoping that you can help me teach all of the adults a lesson at the same time. Do you think you can do that? So I need you to respond to my questions. You can say whatever you want when I ask you the questions, uh, and I think that's going to help us move right along, okay? First, I'm going to draw something, and I need you to guess what it is, okay? Are you ready? Can everyone see this? Most people? All right, you ready? <laughs> Here, let me move this. All right, ready? Oh, yeah. Oop. All right, what is that? A bubble. A bubble? That's a good guess. It does look like a couple of bubbles. Nothing, Nothing a circle, a couple circles. A turtle? A turtle? Oh, I like that guess. Okay, all right, let, let me give you... A mouse head with one ear. He's missing an ear. Okay. Let me draw. What'd you say? A human with limb loss. That's a, an excellent guess, Zach. <laughs> all right. Let me, let me give you some more details. Let me give you some more details. All right. A tree, a sheep. What else? What is it? A dog. It could be a dog. A lamb. A what? A ram. What did you say? A, a bear? A cat? A it might be a bear. All right, let me give you some more details, okay? Oh, I don't know why it has a human nose. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, now it looks like a pig. Okay. Wait, hold on. What is it? It's a cat. You're right. It is a cat. Now, I knew it was a cat the whole time I was drawing it, but how come, how come you guys couldn't guess that it was a cat? That's right, Eloise. I, I, it was kind of hard at the beginning to make it look like a cat. Why else could you not guess what this was? Yeah, Zach. Yeah, it, it, it lacked all of that. It was just two bubbles. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it didn't have enough detail. Eloise? It's also, that's not how you draw cats. That's not how you draw cats. Yeah, I mean, it's not the best cat in the world, but it's pretty clear right now that it's a cat, right? It's a stick man cat. You're right. Well, listen, sometimes it can be really hard to just know what things are by looking at them. But let me ask you a question. If someone looked at this drawing right now and said, that's a house, would they be right? 
Absolutely not. No, Zach. Yes, right. I guess the cat could be a house. We could draw a door and some windows, but it is not uh, a, a house cat. What if someone looked at this and said, hey, that's a car? Would they be right? Yeah. No, the answer is no, they would not be right. What if they looked at this and they said, wow, that is a spaceship that's crashing into a volcano? Would that be right? Yeah. Absolutely not. See, those might be really fun guesses for what this is, but they're definitely not what I drew. I drew a beautiful, cool cat. See that there? That was one of your first guesses. I did hear it, but I hope that you wouldn't keep guessing it because then we wouldn't be able to like keep going, you know? <laughs> well, in the same way that I thought about making a cat and then I drew a cat, did you know that God thought about each one of you and then he made you? Yeah, God thought about you and he made you. And he made you with dark hair and some of you have lighter blonde hair. Some of you have blue eyes. Who's got blue eyes? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anybody got hazel eyes, like light brown? Yep. Anyone got green eyes? Davey, you do not have green eyes. <laughs> Anyone have brown eyes? I got brown eyes. Yeah. Some of you are taller. Some of you are shorter. Some of you guys have darker skin, and some of you guys have lighter skin. Some of you are boys, and some of you are girls. And some of you have 11 fingers. Others have 10 fingers. No. I think, every, I think everyone has 10 fingers, right? There you go, good. I'm glad you counted them out. Now, why do you think that God made us each so different? Eloise says, I don't know. That's fair. Why do you think God made us so different? Okay, yeah. So a part of the reason why God made us different is to have different opinions and thoughts, yeah? Why else do you think God made us all different? Chloe? Chloe? If everyone was the same, we wouldn't know who was who. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, if we were all the same, maybe there wouldn't be anything else. What's that? Right, you, didn't, you wouldn't know what's an animal and what's a person if everything looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Right, if everyone was the same, then they wouldn't be different ages, or everyone would be the same age. Would everyone have a birthday on the same day? On the same day? That's right. Well, you know what? When we, when we look at the Bible, God actually tells us why he makes us different. Did you know that? So, in Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, this is what God says. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. It's another word for boys and girls. The Bible tells us that God made us in his own image, which means that God made us to be like him, but also to look like him too. And all of the ways that God made us super unique and super special actually shows us how special and unique God himself is since we're made in his image. Now, sometimes we might not like the way that we're made. And sometimes people might tease us or treat us differently because of the way that we're made. Sometimes, maybe in school or at home or somewhere else, people will ignore the unique ways that we are made. And they'll say, it doesn't matter how God made you at all. You guys are all the same, and you're all looking exactly the same. You're all the same people. But that's not true. And you know what? God made you, and he made us to be very unique and very special on purpose, and he did it for a reason. And when we accept or when we can have fun being who God made us to be, it makes God really, really happy. And it also makes us really, really happy, too. So when I look at myself in the mirror, I am really thankful for the ways that God made me. He made me with dark black hair like this. Pretty cool looking, huh? And he made me a little bit on the shorter side, which is great because, you know, I can, like, reach low things. I don't, you know? <laughs> That's right. He is tall. A lot of people are tall compared to me. That's right. He made me with 11 fingers, and I'm just kidding, I only have 10. He made me a boy, and he made me Chinese and Vietnamese. And you know what? As I've gotten older, God has really helped me to love and appreciate and have fun being who I, Tommy, am. And I really hope that God can help you have fun being who you guys are, okay? Before I send you back to your seats, I'm going to pray for you. So let's pray. Yep. 
certain specialties. Yeah, I think God makes us all with very special different gifts, which we're actually going to talk about in two weeks at church. So that is cool. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your little children, and we thank you for how you made each of them. God, thank you for how they display your glory in so many different and unique ways. God, you are incredible. You're an incredible creative artist who just makes beautiful things. And so, God, help these little boys and girls come to appreciate and enjoy how they're made. God, shepherd their hearts as they navigate the places where they might be sad or confused in how they're made. And, God, we pray that you would protect their minds and guard their hearts. God, help us as a church, as a church family, to raise them to be men and women who display the gospel through their embracing of how God made them. And help us now, as, as adults, as we turn to your word and our minister to it, God. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kiddos, thank you. Head back to your seats. Let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. Good job. That went great. All right. Well, this is a challenging this is a challenging passage of scripture, uh, no doubt. And I've been spending my week buried inside of commentaries researching this passage. And usually, uh, my experience with commentators, like they're, they're usually really encouraging and comforting. Uh, like a good commentator, as you read it, they're going to take time to explain, they're going to teach, they're going to expand on scripture, and generally just kind of gently hold your hand and, and like a nice tour guide and walk you through a passage uh, to show you the incredible things that, that God is trying to show you in his word. And that honestly has not been totally my experience this week, at least not in any like comfortable way. Um, it's honestly been like getting a tour through a violent minefield, and they're like, hey, watch out for that, and watch out for that, and don't step on that, and be sure to talk about that. One of the first commentators uh, uh, that, that I consulted was uh, a man named Thomas Schreiner. He's one of the most prominent, uh, well-respected, prolific New Testament scholars today. And he opens his commentary on this chapter like this. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the whole Bible. That's how the commentary started. Each commentary I read, thanks, Booge. Look at that. Thank you. <laughs> Each commentary that I read, like the section covering the passage, was probably five to ten's long, ten times longer than any other section around it because this is a bit of a minefield. There's a lot to unpack and untangle, and some of the things that we're untangling are actually tangled to other tangles, and so it's just a tough passage. And it's not just tough theological, theologically, it's not just a theological untangling, but it's connected to a very much a cultural untangling as well. But as you look at the passage, and it starts to make a little bit of sense, and even Schreiner himself comes out to give some encouragement. And he says, the central thrust of the passage is clear. There are difficulties, but some of the key issues are not as difficult as it has been claimed. And the issues that remain obscure do not affect the central teaching of the passage. What we just talked about with our kids right down front here is the heart of the passage. The simplified truths about God making us in his own image and God being really glorified when we embrace and live out how we are uniquely made, that is the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. Now this does open up a lot of really good questions, questions that a lot of us may have as we just read through the passage like, how has God made us different and distinct? And does being different and distinct lead us to specific roles that we are to play? And how do we, in these unique roles, interact with one another? And what in the world does this all have to do with head coverings? These are all good questions that you should be asking as you look at this passage. And what's most important as we continue through the passage this morning, and uh, we quickly kind of tackle some of these questions, is clinging close to the biblical principles at hand, which is derived from Genesis 1 and God's telling of creation. So as we talk about the distinct roles of, of men and women, there's no shortage of very loud ideas about what those ought to be. Our culture might push us to feel a certain way about how we're made, 
We might be taught in our schools to feel a certain way about how we're made. Our own feelings and our own experiences might push us to think a certain way about how we are made. But the word of God is truth. So where all other influences are, are simply ideas that we kind of have to untangle and wrestle through, the, the word of God is the ultimate source of knowledge and understanding. Our, our ultimate compass, which gives us our bearings and helps steer us toward what is actually right, what is actually true north. As a church, as a people of God, we must root ourselves in the word of God in order to know what is right, in order to flourish as children of God and to not be tossed to and fro. So we're going to be moving quickly through this passage, and here's just a quick breakdown of how we're going to organize our time. We're going to talk about the context, we're going to talk about the problem, and then we're going to talk about the solution. Context, problem, solution. So let's start quickly with the context. So the church at Corinth is a relatively young church, which Paul is helping to mature and grow into a healthy structure that is the body of Christ. And this whole sermon series uh, is that of the fractured church, that's the name of the sermon series, which speaks to the numerous areas of brokenness within the church at Corinth, uh, but with the hopeful expectation that those fractures could actually be reset and begin being mended and ultimately healed. So this whole process that we've been talking about through 1 Corinthians is called sanctification, of having sin called out, having that be corrected back to what is right and what we see laid out in God's word, and then the Holy Spirit enabling repentance, which then leads to transformation toward holiness and, and, and righteousness, to be more like Christ. Like, that's the hope of all this. So this happens on a personal level. You see this every Sunday. That's what we're trying to do. But it also has this radiating, like, holy ramifications for the good of the entire church body. And what Paul is calling out in this passage has to do with how Christian women were approaching head coverings in Corinth. So that's the other important piece of context, these head coverings. So these head coverings were just that. They were a piece of cloth, or called a kalima, and they acted as a veil which covered the hair of women. And, and this was uh, normal, a pretty much like very basic part of every single woman's wardrobe in first century Greece. And what's important to know about it is that it is distinctly feminine, distinctly feminine. It, it didn't make you a woman, but it was a cultural signifier, a cultural symbol that women embraced together across the board. So there truly really isn't an equivalent today. Um, a, a lot of what technology has done and, 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 and in our modern day has kind of melted together a lot of the iconic cultural symbols like this. So even as you think about a dress, a dress really is no longer a universal symbol for femininity, and not because men sometimes wear them, but because it no longer is a universal symbol that all women embrace as being uniquely feminine. Like, there are plenty of women who don't care for dresses, and they don't see themselves or other women who don't wear dresses as making a statement or being any less feminine for not wearing a dress. But in first century Greece, not wearing a kalima, that head covering over the hair, it came with social implications and consequences. And when it was done deliberately, it was a statement. It was a statement. And here is the final piece of context. What Paul is calling out in the church at Corinth is that there are Christian women who were not wearing their head coverings during church gatherings. So whether the women were letting them fall off during really intense worship and prayer or maybe they were just showing up without having head coverings at all, it's actually unclear. We're not exactly sure. But to put it simply, there were some women in the church who at some point during the worship gathering, they did not have a covering over their hair. So that's the context. And naturally, you ought to be asking, well, what's the problem? <laughs> what is the big deal? If it's, if it's a big deal at all, that women aren't wearing their head coverings during worship. That seems a little silly. That's a little antiquated. That's honestly a little bit strange and weird. Well, Paul explains the problem. But as we read these verses, consider that the problem for Paul, does, uh, it doesn't have to do with personal preference on the behalf of Paul. It's not a matter of him wanting to just remain really traditional it's not a matter uh, even of um, fashion for Paul. For Paul, the problem is deeply 
theological. It's a deeply theological issue, and it impacts how the Corinthians were able to relate to God and to relate to one another within the church. So with that, look at verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right under the seat, um, and I encourage you to open up so you can look at this for yourself and don't just take my word for it. Starting in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, we're going to get through this. The problem, as Paul communicates it, is a dishonoring that's happening within Corinth based on this attitude toward head coverings. But to further understand why that's a problem, we need to pull out of these verses. And I know, like, there's a lot in this passage, and and we're not going to be able to run down every single trail. And and just please know, like, I am available. I would love to meet up with you and go down those individual trails, and I invite you to do that. So please reach out to me. I'd love to grab coffee and actually make use of all of the research that I did to, to, to kind of enlighten you and answer those questions that you might have. But what we need to pull out of these verses is what Paul sets up for us in verse 3 right there. So he sets up three things. He says, Christ is the head of every man, that husbands are the heads of wives, and that God is the head of Christ. Now, there are several ways that you can translate the word head or kephale, but the most likely contextually here is to understand it as headship. Or, or with a sense of leadership or authority. And we're going to talk about why we arrive at that translation specifically in a minute. But to understand this passage and the problem, we need to see this theological principle that Paul is setting up here. That Christ is the headship or authority over man. And that husbands are the headship or the authority over wives. And that God is the headship or the authority over Jesus. Now, the challenging thing for us here is likely not that Christ is being the authority over man or that God is the authority over Jesus, but what goes against the grain of our culture and philosophy and even what's in some of our hearts today is that husbands are an authority over wives. And so I want to acknowledge that I do not imagine this text to be easy for everyone here. So if this irks you, if it like makes you frustrated, even just hearing the mention of this idea, I want to encourage you that you're not alone in feeling that way, that this as a church is a safe place to be able to engage with and talk about these things. But my encouragement and hope is that you would give the word of God a chance, that you would soften your heart here. And my prayer all week as I've been preparing, has been that God's word would cut through the cultural walls, the the personal pain, the distracting thoughts that we might have in our head, to be able to minister into your heart and establish you firmly in the truth of God's word. Now, authority and submission are difficult concepts for us today because of two reasons. One, because of the seemingly infinite examples of broken and toxic authority, and two, the, 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 the painful impact um, of bad and broken authority that we've had on our own lives. All of us have likely interacted with bad authority and leadership at one point or, or another. So maybe through a bad boss or manager, maybe through a bad teacher or professor, maybe a bad coach or mentor, maybe it's a bad parent or a bad spouse. So it's important that we define authority not based on our world's understanding of authority, not based on our own experience of authority, but how God views it. Or maybe more vividly, how God himself shows it. What we see is that the word that's used to communicate headship and authority, the kephale that's used in this passage, is the same one in verse 3 here as the one that's used in Ephesians 5, where Paul paints a picture of a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife and how that reflects a healthy relationship between Christ and the church. This is going to be on your screens next to me. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 25. Wives, submit 
to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, that's that word there, kephale, of the wife, even as Christ is the head, kephale, of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Biblical headship and authority is not aggressively domineering any more than Christ is aggressively domineering. It is not thoughtless and cold any more than Christ himself is thoughtless and cold. On the contrary, the authority of Christ and, and what he displays over the church is demonstrated in Scripture as one of gentleness and of meekness. It is one of humility and tender loving care. It is aggressive, it is strong, but not against the one whom Christ is head over, but on behalf of those under his care. And Christ is an advocate. He, he pours himself out for the good of his church, who is his body, his own body, and who he leads in absolutely flourishing and being able to be gloriously radiant in how God designed the church to be. See, I think that manly leadership and authority, when we think about it, we might have a fantastical view of masculinity. Kind of like George Washington crossing the Delaware River. You guys seen that painting? He's got his trifold hat on, and he's just like going into the cold, freezing river. Or maybe Leonidas kicking over an enemy and saying, this is Sparta, and he kicks him in the chest, right? Or maybe we picture toxic mas masculinity that makes all of the headlines today. A masculinity that is focused on domination, on aggressiveness, and is just aggressive by nature, and which is deathly allergic to anything that is quote-unquote feminine. And then there's the masculinity of nothingness. So when we see that there are all these broken caricatures of manliness in the world around us, and then we despair, and that despair sets in, and we think, man, there's no such thing as healthy masculinity. That the best type of masculinity is probably no masculinity at all. Or maybe, like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. What we see in the Bible is a different option. And it's not an average of these views. It's not a balanced center point on a scale. It's on a completely different scale. Because Christ is our example of masculinity, of male leadership and authority. And it's one that exists to serve others, to bear responsibility for others, to help others flourish. It's a masculinity that pours itself out for those whom they lead and have authority over, even to the point of death on the cross. And so Jesus, as you think about him, as you read about him in Scripture, as you're hearing him being preached on a Sunday morning, Jesus is the manliest man that has ever walked the face of the earth, period. And so Mercy House, this is a broader principle that goes beyond just how married men ought to interact with their wives. This is a call to all men in this room that we ought to lead and interact with the world around us in a specific way, and especially toward women and our sisters in Christ. So where culture or even other seasons of the American church might say, hey, it's time to man up. You got to take charge. You got to be decisive. You got to puff your chest up. You got to take control. The gospel exhortation to the men of this generation is to man up, but it's to man up and to die. Man up and die. Man, I want you to look at me for a second, okay? Just the men in the room. We need to be the men that God designed us to be. We got to do it. That's what the world is crying out for. That's what our families are crying out for. That's what our community is crying out for. We need to be the men that God designed us to be, which means we pour ourselves out for the good of others, that we count everyone around us as more significant than ourselves. As men, we're called to empower others around us, to initiate when there is stagnation, and to take responsibility for anyone and everyone when we can around us for their good. So let's lead as men with maturity, with dignity, with righteousness, and ultimately, like our heroic, manly Savior, Jesus Christ, let us lay down our lives for our sisters, for one another, and for the glory of God. 
This is what it means to be a godly man in authority and to have headship over others. And so my prayer is that our men, including myself, would hear this call and that we would fulfill our God-given role as men. Now, the reason I go down this path is because it helps us understand the problem with women not wearing their head coverings in Corinth. And the reason it's problematic, according to Paul here, is that it communicated a rejection of these theological principles of headship and authority. It was dishonoring specifically to the husbands of the wives who were not wearing the head coverings because it rejected the husband's headship over them. But there also is a more broad dishonoring of God in rejection of the principle at large and a lack of submission to what God had established originally. Now, in the same way that the concept of authority and headship can be triggering, so can the exhortation to submit. So let me just preface this by saying that even though this passage does focus on the submission of women, we all are called to submit as Christians. We're all called to submit as slaves of Christ. You see that earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. We're all called to submit as slaves to righteousness, which is Romans 6, 18. We're, we're also called to submit under the government and local authorities, Romans 13, 1. We're called to submit to our parents as, as faithful children, Ephesians 6, 1. As members of Mercy House, we're called to submit under our elders, Hebrews 13, 7. As employees, we're called to submit to our employers and our bosses, 1 Peter 1.18. See, Michael Kruger, in, in an article exhorting Christian men specifically to be more submissive in the church, he says submission is not a female virtue. It is a Christian virtue. So women, please, don't hear me or don't hear this text as singling you out in an exclusive way. The other thing to remember is that headship and authority does not mean that those submitting under it are inferior or have less dignity or are less valuable. So remember that one of the models of this headship and authority principle is how God the Father is head over Christ. So that's in verse 3. And you see this in Christ's earthly ministry, a humble submission to the Father. Jesus was not lesser than God. He's not God junior. He's fully God fully glorious, and fully deserving of glory and honor on the same level as God the Father, yet still choosing to submit under the headship and authority of the Father. You see this in a couple places, you see this in a lot of places, but a couple places I have for you, and this is going to be on your screen as well, Mark 14, 36. And this is Jesus in the garden, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's talking about the torturous death that he's about to have to go through in order to save all mankind from their sin. But look what he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's a moment of submission under authority and headship. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, Paul says this to the church at Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Headship and submission, this dynamic between men and women, is not one that communicates value or significance any more than Jesus himself is less value or, or less significant than God the Father. Men and women play different and distinct roles. That's what we see as we read the Bible. And these roles interact in Christ-like headship and authority over Christ-like humble submission. But there is no hierarchy of importance. And Paul gets at this in the next verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verses 7 through 12. For a man ought, not, ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is all packed into Genesis 1 and 2. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
We are not going to be able to dive into angels. This is just a little parenthetical. If you want to talk about angels, I would love to grab coffee with you. The angels, uh, the one thing that's agreed across all the commentaries is that it is not incredibly clear what that means. There's lots of good um, ways to understand and interpret that, but there's not like an agreement other than it is, even if it remains obscure, it is not speaking to or detracting from the main heart of the passage. Okay, so that's my little bit on angels. If you want to talk more about angels, let's grab coffee. Verse 10 again, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. One thing I will say about angels, because I think that's important, is that what it does communicate is that there is a broader audience to creation than what we just see here. Does that make sense? So there are celestial, divine beings that are looking into creation. And the way that we interact with each other, the way that we do church, as we bring glory to God, that is something that's valued and important because there are other people watching in. You see in Matthew, when it talks about, like, when a sinner repents, the angels are celebrating. So, like, they're kind of watching as, like, as if it's, like, an audience of a football game, and they're cheering for the home team. And when we get it right, when we do things to the glory of God and the way that God designed it, they're like, let's go! And that's, I think, a part of what Paul is trying to help them understand, is that it's more than just the people in this room that are impacted when you pursue righteousness and obedience to God. Okay, that's my little bit about angels. In this passage, though, the heart of it is that Paul is affirming that there is a created order, that man was made first, and then woman was made from man. And as you read Genesis, woman was made for man. And God could have sprouted them up simultaneously. He could have. He's God. But he did not. And so the order is significant, and it's expounded upon here. But also, Paul is reminding them that within the sovereign framework of God, that now all men uh, come from women. And so God's precise and deliberate in, 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 in his initial ordering, but that ordering does not communicate value. And Jesus himself will talk about how the first shall be last and the last shall be first in his parable in Matthew 20 that's about perceived value of people. So that's not what's at question here. So what is the solution? We've got to land this plane. So in context, we've got these head coverings, which are a symbol of femininity, and the women in the church weren't wearing them. And the problem is that not wearing these cultural symbols of femininity was really rejecting God's ordained ordering of men and women and how they ought to relate to one another which is modeled in Christ and his authority and headship over the church and in his humble submission to the Father. So what is the solution to this? Well, Paul actually turns it over to the Corinthians to figure it out for themselves. He's been setting up the biblical and theological principles. He points out how their cultural uh, actions are conflicting with some of those principles, and then he encourages them to figure it out. Look at verses 13 to the end here. Verse 13 says, Judge for yourselves. Which means, hey, you guys got to figure this out. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then he goes into some more explanation. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And so Paul asks them, it says, based on how God has made men and women, and based on uh, this fact that head coverings and what they mean culturally in Corinth, is it proper? Is it right? Is it edifying for women to not wear a head covering? It's interesting because Paul further expounds the significance of head coverings in verses 14 and 15. So he's telling them to figure it out in verse 13, but then he gives them two more clues to make sure that they actually get it right. And what Paul does is he communicates this idea of what is natural. So natural here, meaning what is seemingly naturally intuitive for them, what is culturally normal and acceptable. Now, not everything that's culturally and socially acceptable helps communicate deep theological truths. For instance, idolatry in Corinth was the norm, but Paul says to flee from that. So that's two chapters ago. And what he points out is a culturally normal, universally acceptable conception here, though. 
that men cut their hair short, this was true of them, and women had long hair. So in Corinth, men did not have long locks of hair, and women did not have a buzz cut. Again, this is not the case today, okay? My wife, who's one of the most beautifully feminine people I know, has had hair in certain seasons shorter than mine. Maybe not this short, but pretty short. And just find a picture of Jake Blackwood a year into the pandemic. Like, he had long, flowing locks. They were beautiful. (laughs) This is not universal across time. Nor is it prescriptive for us today. So if you have long hair as a man today, if you have short hair as a woman, that's, that's not what it's getting at. But this was true for them in the first century. And so what Paul is implying is that there are natural, intuitive symbols of femininity and masculinity in our world and in our culture, and when we embrace them, we communicate the truth that there are distinct genders of male and female, that those exist, that they're not just made up, that they're real, and that we identify with or assume the role of one of those. Now, women, this is complicated today. It's complicated, and um, and that's not a bad thing that it's complicated. So women have experienced great liberation and freedom as women. Uh, This is a theme that actually began with the ministry of Jesus, which has brought us here today. And things are not totally equitable or equal, and there's still like a long ways to go, but your freedom, women, today is much further along than it was in first century Palestine. In fact, the gospel allowed men and women to worship together in the same space for the first time. It was something completely unprecedented. But just because all things are lawful, this is a theme throughout 1 Corinthians, doesn't mean that all things are beneficial or edifying. And what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians is that throwing away the notion of gender or discarding cultural and social symbols of femininity specifically is actually at the cost of being able to display the beautifully ordained ordering that God has set up in man and woman. So in short, there are lots of freedoms that Paul was all about giving to members of the church. Freedoms that would benefit them and, and, and be for their good and the good of their faith. But this particular freedom was a destructive step in the wrong direction. And so the Corinthian women were exhorted to wear their head coverings. That was the solution. Which, as I hope... You're seeing as we break down what that means culturally and what that points to theologically, it's simply an exhortation to embrace womanhood and femininity. And so that's my encouragement to you women today, to be women, to be women. Embrace your God-given femininity. Now, I understand that this is complicated. I don't honestly know what the modern-day head coverings are thought a lot about this, talked to a lot of women specifically about this. I don't know that we have universal symbols of femininity that that you ought to embrace and appropriate into godly ways as a woman. But this is a place where I hope that together, as a community, the, the women can do what Paul encourages the Corinthians to do, which is to judge for yourselves. To judge for yourselves. In the same way that culture has tried to define masculinity and has failed, culture has also tried to define femininity, and they have failed. So culture will say that to be feminine means to be dainty or to be weak or soft-spoken, which isolates womanly, fully womanly women who are strong and courageous and outspoken. Culture might say that to be feminine means to be sexy and promiscuous or, or maybe to be really smart or, or to be really successful or to be thin or to be thick or to be short or tall. And any combination of all these that you can think of, like your head can truly spin as you try to find a consistent narrative. So if TikTok and Instagram were your only resource, you'd never be able to figure out what it means to be a woman. You wouldn't. But there is such thing as true femininity. And it's a God-envisioned, beautiful thing that God has given to us to figure out. And the way that we figure it out is through his word. Culture and the American church have, in some cases, really complicated this and made it more difficult than it has to be. In other cases, culture and the church has completely polluted what this means, what biblical femininity is. And so I cannot launch into what biblical femininity is because it deserves more than just a paragraph at the end of this sermon. But here's what we see in this passage. 
In the same way that men are to model leadership and authority with, with selfless sacrifice like Christ, so women are made to model submission to worthy men. Mind you, that's a really important parenthet- uh, per- parenthetical with humble and affirming, with a humble and affirming spirit like that of Christ. The most beautiful picture of this is when they happen together. When they happen together. It's hard, seemingly impossible, when they're not happening together. Caitlin and I, my wife, like, by the grace of God, we've been able to experience some of this sweet picture together. And Caitlin has told me in the past, and even this past week, she'll say, thanks for loving me so well. Thanks for advocating for me. Thanks for knowing me and fighting for me. Thank you for making it easy to submit. She's communicated that. And God knows, as Caitlin stepped into marriage, that she wasn't super excited about this idea of submission at all. But as we've grown together in this dynamic and have worked hard to figure it out, and as the Lord's been really gracious to it, I'm also able to look at her and say, thank you, Caitlin, for loving me so well. Thank you for affirming my strengths and encouraging me in my insecurities. Thank you for making it so easy to lead. The easiest person in the world to pour out my life for is my wife. And it's not because I love her, but because she makes it such an easy joy to be able to do that. This is how we'll end. There's a lot of talk right now in the world about masculinity and femininity, but not a lot of biblical instruction on it. And in reality, leadership and submission are one aspect, one aspect of masculinity and femininity. But they are foundational. It's a foundational fracture in humanity. As we see, Adam's first sin is to neglect the duty of headship and authority, and Eve's first sin of refusing to humbly submit under authority. So it's pretty important from there, the relationships between men and women begin disintegrating, and the individual roles of men and women become tainted and muddied, And so it's important to talk about. My hope and my prayer and my initiative over this next year is for Mercy House to begin having healthy dialogues about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And again, not defining that by our culture, not letting our feelings or experiences dictate that, but by defining it in what God has to say about the roles of men and women based on the infallible, infallible, beautiful, authoritative, life-giving word of God. And lastly, even as we're taught these things, we cannot just flip a switch. Uh, Being men and women as God made us to be requires freedom and liberation from what the world or our culture or our broken experiences, our broken feelings tell us about being men and women. It begins not with humble submission to other people, but humble submission under God and his word, especially when God's word tells us things that are uncomfortable for us to hear. And in that, trusting in his headship and his authority over us. Not to trample us, not to bend us and force us into submission, but to shepherd us with kindness and with gentleness, leading us to flourishing as men and women of God. If you're stuck in this, if you feel imprisoned, maybe you feel stifled in your gender, if even having a gender is existentially problematic for you, know that Jesus died so that you could be freed from that place of confusion and frustration and hurt and anger. But we must first submit to him, God, and his good authority over us in order to experience that freedom, a freedom and peace that goes beyond figuring out what your gender identity is. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is being broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the, of the, of the new covenant shed in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion we remember the length at which Jesus went in his headship and authority over us. He didn't lead only when it was convenient, as if it was ever convenient for him to lead, but he didn't lead or exercise his authority in order to just crush those around him when things got difficult. He led with humility and resolve to protect those under his authority 
to the very, very, very end. There is no greater leader, there's no better uh, model for authority than what is represented here at this meal. God made men and women in his image. And we embrace this. When we do embrace this, just borrowing some language from the kids' sermon earlier, when we're able to have fun in being who we are as God made us, God is really happy. It brings God glory. And it also allows us to be happy and full of joy as well. If you struggle with this, I encourage you to lay it at God's feet this morning. Being men and being women is really important to God, but what's even more important is that we submit all of who we are to his headship. So there are plenty of people who are able to fully embrace, embrace like what it means to be a man and a woman, but they do not submit themselves to God. <laughs> but what God calls us to is to submit all of it, our passions, our hurts, our pains, our plans, our struggles, our fears, all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength and our gender to his authoritative, loving headship. Let's pray. God, you are our Father. You are glorious and worthy of worship. The way that you have created the world is beautiful. God, we confess that we sometimes have a hard time appreciating and enjoying creation. And that's not because of a flaw in how you created it. It's because of the effects of sin in ourselves and in the world, which has broken your creation. God, we're thankful that you are a God who redeems and restores broken things. God, I pray that here in our church, here in the lives of the men and women listening today, that you would do the work of healing and restoration in our heart of hearts, in the very core of how we were even made in your image, God. And we confess that some of those things that we hear in your word as, as, as they're being preached or as we're just reading in our own time are hard to hear and they go against how we feel. Lord, we pray that you would do the supernatural work of giving us a heart of flesh to be able to be transformed and renewed by your word. We cannot do this without you, God. God, thank you that you have sent your son to die and to rescue us from our sin and allow us to have this freedom. God, in Christ, we see the ultimate example of leadership and authority, but also submission. And so help us, as we have these conversations over this next year, to know that the things that you're asking us to do and reminding us of in your word are not things that you have not done yourself. Help us to look at you as the model for these things. Help us to be guarded and protected from the world around us. Guard specifically our children, God, as their minds are being formed in our schools that are not rooted in your word. Lord, help us to be a faithful and obedient body of believers. Lord, help us to worship you. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.